Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. On this show, we share stories. We share stories of big adventures, stories of big struggles, stories that allow us to share our experiences and to learn from each other. And today's guest, Rosalie Mastaylor, was pushed into the world of disabilities when her oldest son was attacked by a police canine and he lost the lower part of his left leg. She and her family now focus on being advocates for those with disabilities and helping people to keep hope. This is a big thing. When Hunter, this is her son, became an amputee at just four years old, his parents had to negotiate a host of feelings, including guilt and grief and worry for how their son was going to adapt. The loss of his lower leg altered their lives and how they cared for him, of course. But Rosalie and Michael, it's his dad, soon realized that the most powerful tool that they could offer Hunter was resilience. I'm really interested about this resilience topic because it's so big for all of us. So stay tuned for their story and a peek at the Mass Daler Party of Five. are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Mass Taylor Party of Five is the social media presence of the Mass Taylor family and their story. In 2015, Michael, that's the dad in this story, his police dog attacked Hunter, their four-year-old son, and the bite was so severe that they were forced to amputate his left leg below the knee. Seeing their names and their pictures in the news articles and the stories across the world was mortifying. And all they wanted was privacy to recover and peace. As Hunter began to heal and adapt, they felt inspired to share their journey of hope and finding joy. They knew they were more than a tragedy. And so today we get to talk with Mama Mastaylor herself, Rosalie. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. Hi, Lori. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Let's jump right in with your story. Take us to what happened. Yeah, so... Gosh, it's been, we're actually about to, I say celebrate, celebrate the eighth anniversary of that day. We call it Hunter's Alive Day. It's almost like another birthday for him. So on February 8th, 2015, I get a phone call from my husband saying that his police dog bit Hunter. And Hunter was four years old at the time, like you had said. And I'm like, all right, I was out running a quick errand and I'm like, okay, tell me what hospital I need to meet you guys at. He was very calm, but I mean, he had been a police officer for over a decade by then. He knew how to handle these situations and his calmness definitely kept me calm, but it also didn't give me any inclination of how severe the situation was. Well, tell so me, when- tell me really quick. How did, 
How were Hunter and the police dog like interacting? Like what, what prompted it? We don't know. All we know is so here's there's a lot of misconceptions with police dogs. I think this is a good place to start because there are some police dogs that are just used to sniff things, whether it's drugs or bombs like those could be very nice dogs like bloodhounds. Um, You can go up to them and pet them and they're not going to care. But then you also have dogs that are trained to bite and to train to go after that suspect and help the police officer contain them and take them down. And the police dog that my husband had was one of those. He was trained to be a bite dog. And those dogs have tons of rules around them. They don't typically like to take them out to community events just because there's a lot of risks with it. As it being with our, in our home, the family does not interact with it. It is not a family dog. It is not a pet. It was my husband's partner. And if he wasn't at work with him in his police unit training, then he was at home locked up in his kennel. Now, to give some backstory of how it happened was my husband had been working at a boot camp that weekend and it's with troubled teens in his city. So I can, I'm sure you can imagine how taxing that was on him for that weekend. He, it's only him and a few other officers that run it. And it's the very first weekend. And he had been gone all weekend. And so that meant Django hadn't been with his partner all weekend. We can only assume how Django was feeling when Michael came home and let him out. Probably very much wanted to be let out of his cage. So Michael came home, let him out of his cage. I told him, I'm running a quick errand. I'm taking my younger son, who was 18, about 18 months at the time. He said, I'm going to leave Hunter here with you because Hunter was almost five. He was over four and a half, very capable of turning on the TV and just like sitting there and, and doing his own thing. He was very, very independent. Um, Michael went up to take a shower because like I said, he'd been gone at a camp all weekend and Hunter did not realize that I had left. And so he went looking for me and it was very, very odd that he went looking in the backyard because we don't use our backyard. It was a smaller backyard. We rarely even played out there. I rarely went out there. But for some reason, he went looking in the backyard and Django was out there. No one was around. No one knows how it happened. He tries to describe the event sometimes. But all I can assume is that he he looked out the door and Django saw him. And Django's cue is that door opens and he makes his journey from that back door to the police unit, which is through the house to the garage. Whenever that happened... Me and the kids always stood back. We kept our distance. And he knew it was just a beeline to the car. That's how he was trained. So my guess is he opened the door. Django saw the door open, tried to go inside. And Hunter put out his leg to put some distance between them. And Django bit down on his leg. Were there any repercussions for Django? No, there were not. Um, There was talk of them. And yeah, there were not. Okay. So go on with your story. I just, I sidetracked you there. That's no, you're, you're totally fine. Cause that, that, that's usually a very common question. And usually people wonder what did happen with him. He went to the previous owner, the previous handler. He was out of our lives pretty much instantly. There are zero bitter feelings towards him. He's a dog. He, he's, he was, trained he did to what he was trained to do. Yeah. And animals are animals and we still love them. And people often wonder too, does Hunter still like dogs? He loves them. He loves them. He will pet oh, them. Oh, good. Yeah. So anyways, so I get the phone call and I just thought, oh, it was probably like a little snap. You know, he probably just needs stitches. 
tell me where I'm going to the hospital. So a few phone calls went back and forth. Michael stayed very calm. And then finally we get to a phone call where I'm hearing people talking in the background and I'm like, who is in the background? And he said, it's the paramedics. And that's when I'm like, why are there paramedics at our house? Like, what is going on? And he said, Rosalie, just, just get home as soon as you can. And I'm like, I want to know what's going on. And he had to hang up the phone because I think he was trying to coordinate everything. Calls me back and I hear him talking to the paramedic. And he said, where are you landing the bird? <sighs> and I knew they were bringing in a helicopter for him. And that's when I lost it. That's when I knew my son's life is in danger. I just need to get to him as soon as possible. Luckily, I was not the one driving. I happened to be with um, Michael's younger brother. He ran the errand with me. So he was driving and he drove us to the airport where the helicopter was. And I got there just in time for them to take off and take me and Hunter to the hospital. Wow. Oh, I can only imagine. Yeah. So what happened from there? It was a very quick 12-minute ride to the hospital. There were a lot of very sincere and very some very specific moments from that drive to the hospital, to the airport, and then lifting us up to the hospital. The moment I got to Michael and he he ended up kind of, he met me at the truck before we got to Hunter. And that interaction with him will stay with me for the rest of my life because he broke down and Michael's, I've, I can count on one hand how many times I've seen him cry and, and we're high school sweethearts. We have known each other for many, many, many years. And it was a look on his face that I had never ever seen before. And it was just guilt and pain and just so many words I, I, that you can't, I can't even fully describe how he looked. And the first thing he said to me is it's all my fault. And I felt so bad for him because nobody wants that guilt placed on their shoulders. And I immediately told him without any hesitation, I will never blame you for this. And I felt that so strongly and I still feel that. And there's never been a moment of blame. And we had a very brief moment together, very intimate. And then I got to Hunter right away. They got us on the helicopter. We lifted up. I was just trying my best to stay calm and to breathe. And as we lifted up, there's like this big, we kind of, not necessarily mountains, but there's a small mountain range from wh where the airport was to get us to the children's hospital because there was not one in our area. And it's just very clear. There's not really a city and the sun was setting and you could kind of see over through the clouds, the sun and the mountains. And I just remember looking out the window and looking at the colors in the sky and I just knew that I was seeing God. And I just cried out to him. I said, please, I see you. I know that this is you. Please protect my little boy. And I knew that he would. I knew that he would. I didn't know what that meant. But I just knew that he would protect him. And that moment of faith, I was able to hold on to that in the very beginning and to just hold on to it throughout the whole journey of everything. So how was Hunter doing? By the time I got to him, he was pretty sedated. So mm -hmm. very quiet. I don't think he even really noticed if I was there. So yes, because they, I think they shot him up with morphine pretty quick when they got to him. So by the time I got to him, just very calm. No, I don't even remember him saying anything to me. So how long did it take before you knew you were going to have to have the leg amputated? And was all that decided pretty quickly? 
No. So we get there and they rush him in right away. I knew they were going to get him into surgery and they had me sign the consent form. And at this point, I was there by myself because Michael couldn't get in the helicopter with us. And it was just very, a lot of it was a blur. And I just remember them reading off these things. Okay, we're going to try and do this and this and this and this. And then at the very end of the consent form, it said, and if we have to, we will amputate his leg. That's all I remember. I almost passed out. They caught me, sat me down in a chair. I scribbled my name and I could not fathom it. I could not imagine my child losing a limb. So they got him into surgery. They tried everything they could to repair everything, but they came out and they said, we've done everything we can, but we don't know if the blood flow is going to return through those veins. And what happens with small pediatric bodies when there's a, like a rupture and a wound like that is the there's an elasticity to the veins that closes them up pretty quick so they don't bleed out. So it saved his life, but he lost his leg because of it. Mm -hmm. So it took about three days. Um, and on February 11th, his foot was just turning black and blue because there was no blood flow. And on February 11th is when they made the call. This is what we have to do or else he's going to lose more of his leg or there's going to be infection and it's just going to get worse. And they amputated it that day. Wow. So how did you and Michael do that day? So that day... I think it was a miracle that we survived that day. I remember the day before and the days leading up to it. All I wanted to do was just cry nonstop. Just so many emotions. Like whenever anyone talked to me, I just felt like I just wanted to cry and cry and cry. As my son lay in the hospital bed, we didn't know what was going to happen. It just never looked, it never pointed to him keeping his leg, but I still wanted to have faith that he would. And so it was so many torn feelings and emotions of, I want this miracle, but I don't think it's going to happen. So the night before, I just remember being so upset, thinking, like, how did this happen? And the morning of, we knew that it was going to happen that day. The morning of, Michael came in because he didn't, I stay, would stay the night at the hospital with him. So he came in that morning and we just sat there by Hunter's bed and I just cried out to Michael and I'm like this just isn't fair it's not fair for him I I just don't understand and Michael so calmly and it, it just seemed like he was so empowered by faith said to me this is Heavenly Father's way of protecting him and we went through all of the things that could have happened he could have been bitten on different parts of his body he could have died he could have bled out he could have lost more than just the bottom of his leg and we we just we thought of all of our blessings and how he's still alive and that was it we just went into it with that faith and that's real, that's it. beautiful yeah so let me ask this then as a comparison what was the hardest part of this for you and then what was the most beautiful part of it for you the part like initially trauma wise is that what you're referring to? Just whatever, whatever you want. Whatever, whatever it was. Okay. Yeah, the, whole, the whole experience. You know, you talked about being able to purposefully transition into a space of gratitude and restructuring the story so that it was supportive of you, which is such a fabulous resilient skill. So, you, you know, you showed that right off the bat. And in doing so, you know, obviously with these kinds of events, with the hard step in our lives, 
there's always things that we learn and get things out of it. And so what is the thing that has been the best for you? And then what what was the low point as well? Just so we have this comparison. Yeah, so I'll start with the low point so we can get to the happier part. <laughs> um, <laughs> the low point man, was, I, I think the hardest thing was watching him struggle and realizing that it was his choice whether or not to accept his disability. And I could not change that. I could give him tools and introduce him to people and provide him with opportunities that I think would help. But I learned a lot about agency because no matter what I did, sometimes I felt like it he just wasn't choosing to accept it. And it took mm. months and months and months before he took his first step, which is kind of our big moment of, okay, he's starting to accept it. And then there were a lot of, still a lot more ups and downs after that, but that was really tough to watch him struggle because he did not, that was, we had made the decision for ourselves of this is what's going to happen to our son and we're going to try and move forward. But we can only take him with us together. We can't drag him along. I absolutely um, understand that. Yep. And any, any parent who's had children suffer within or struggle with something, you know how hard it is to watch that struggle. Yeah. Yeah. And I really had to learn as a mother that stuff's going to happen to my kids. And I still have to make sure that I take care of myself so that I can best support them. Because if I let everything that they're doing in a sense, affect me so much that I can't be a support for them, then I'm not doing everything I can as a mother to help lift them. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that make sense? Absolutely. And I think it's a brilliant thing to point out because so often when we're really caught up in that, that worry and concern, it just bleeds the energy out of you, you know, I mean, and so to adjust your energy, to do things that will lift you up and give you the strength to keep going, even to find joy amidst their struggling like so that you can you can still provide a safe and an optimistic space for them it's hard work yeah yeah it really was and yeah and so just so many so many learning experiences and I, I think that's really what I learned was that happiness is truly a choice and you can't depend on anyone else to make you happy you have to figure out how you're gonna make yourself happy. And my son, so Hunter now, flash forward, he's 12 years old and he's going through a little bit of a rut right now. In his mind, it's definitely a big rut (laughs) and it is, it totally is. But he ended up having surgery again on his leg in December and there was an infection, there was a wound and it was just all these things. So he had surgery again and now he has to wait for a new leg. And that is very hard for a very active 12 year old and now all of a sudden we took away his mobility and he can't walk. And he's just kept having a lot of moments of this sucks. And I would support that. Yes, this sucks. You are very validated in thinking that, but you have two choices. You can either wallow in your pity and not be happy, or you can choose to move forward. We have a date of when you're getting that leg. You just look to that date, get through one day at a time, get through one little moment at a time, because this is your choice of how you're going to handle this. So you said through these past years, 
Hunter has taught our family a hard but vital lesson. Sometimes when you fall, you don't always get up right away, and that is okay. The important part is getting up and trying again and again, and that has taken more strength and courage than I have ever had, unquote. Tell me about that. So when Hunter, after the amputation and we accepted it, I think we just thought like, okay, we're just going to move forward and like, just be hunky-dory about it all. (laughs) And But then it was the struggle to get his leg and to get him up and walking on his leg. And then he started walking and then it was great. And then he hit an age where he noticed his differences. And then we dropped again. And that was another fall. And so we had to help him through that. We went, he went through therapy and he went, talked to mentors and then he got up again. And there's been so many moments and that's all of our lives, right? It's, uh, but these, so these falls were just so unexpected and nothing that we ever thought we would encounter but the fact that he just keeps getting up and keeps pushing forward he's learning that you can have hard times and you can still get up no matter how hard that time is and no matter how difficult no matter how challenging and that has taught me so much as a person and I I look up to him so much for doing that like it just it's it's a big deal well yeah (laughs) So basically what we're talking about is resilience. And you had mentioned somewhere that it was a number one tool. What does that mean to you in your life and in Hunter's life? I think exactly what we just said, just to keep trying to keep going. Resilience is a journey. It's not a destination, just like healing and just like grieving. I think they all go hand in hand and knowing that every journey is going to be different. And I, I think there's a misconception With children in particular, there is that saying, oh, children are so resilient. And that bothered me because my kid wasn't getting up right away. He did not get his leg and start walking right away. I'm like, what the heck? Like everyone says kids are resilient. I think that misconception is kids are physically resilient. Their bodies were built to be physically resilient because of their youthfulness and how anatomy works and how our bodies work. That's why their scrapes heal faster than ours. Like, that's just Mm -hmm. how it is. But mentally and emotionally, it's not a given. Kids can take some time and take longer to accept things and to be resilient than adults. And I think we need to recognize that and not just think, my kid is going through a hard time. Oh, they're resilient. They'll just get up and bounce back. We need to make sure that we really, truly support them and we really know how difficult it is for them because. It's not, we can't just think, oh, just get up and throw some dirt on it. Let them, let them be, let be okay with the fact that they're struggling. You know, I think that the reason that speaking about resilience so much on the podcast for me is important is because in the day and age that we're in, there is so much resiliency that is required. And when someone does not have that resiliency, well, let's just say, the high, the high number of suicides, right? The high number of people who decide I can't deal with whatever it is that they have before them. So, so much of, as I speak with people who have hard things, the redeeming or like you say, the number one tool really to make it through hard things is that resiliency. So coming to understand, having discussions about it, sharing stories about it, coming to understand what resiliency looks like. I think it's very important to all of us because we're all going to have different types of hard times, but they will try us and take us to our places where we're on our knees, just, you know, grappling 
with our our darkest spaces. And so understanding what that looks like is really important. But I think your point is also really important that we don't always bounce back super fast. The bouncing back is the important part, but the fact that, you know, there there's space for grieving. There is space mm-hmm. for, you know, oftentimes forgiveness for something doesn't come until there's time, you know, time built in. And the getting the the grieving something, it's not like, okay, that happened last week. Now I should be up and going. Like there's a space for all of those emotions. There's a space for the trying, the struggle, building emotional and mental strength is like building physical strength also, where you work at it, you work at it, you work at it. And I think that's an important part of resiliency that you've just brought up. So thank you for that. I wanted to talk about your you had mentioned that looking for miracles beyond what you pray for was a really important part of your journey. And I'd love to hear more about that. Miracles as a whole, you know, we think about, we, I mean, we think about going back to Christ's time. He he healed the lepers. He made the blind man see. He brought people back from the dead. But he didn't do that for everybody. And that doesn't mean that you know, the blind man next to the person who could see that was healed is any less of a person. I've had to understand that miracles will happen. Sometimes it's not the miracles we pray for, but it's the miracles that we need. And that will help us to become who we're supposed to become. I, when I was praying for the miracle for Hunter, my miracle is very straightforward. I don't want him to lose his leg. Heavenly Father, please please help him to keep his leg. And I did not receive that miracle. So then we had to switch to different miracles of, okay, that miracle did not happen, but miracles still did happen. And we wanted, we chose to see Heavenly Father's hand in our life still. We chose to see those miracles beyond what we were praying for. Or else I, or else we would have lost our faith. I really believe that. And... I think that's just kind of what it came down to. So what was it you think you needed? You said, we we don't get what we want, we get what we need. What have you gotten out of this that you needed? I think it's all about Hunter's path and Hunter's journey. Hunter would not be who he is today without going through what he went through. And that is everyone's experience, I think. I mean, I, I don't really necessarily like the saying, oh, it, it happens for a reason, but I do believe that there are experiences in our lives that help to mold us and help us to become better. And and it's for our good. And Hunter, like I said, is a very remarkable young man and he's still a very average young man as well. Like he, like, I feel like sometimes people will meet him and they've only like seen him on social media. And I'm like, okay, he's still very much kind of an awkward 12 year old who isn't necessarily, you know, very well spoken or anything like that. But I think Hunter has a journey and a path that is still unfolding. His story is still being written and it wouldn't be what it is without him losing his leg. And do you see clearly that this is that this is what he needed to develop? I mean, I think that's a that's a really hard question because. You're not at the end of the story. You don't have 20 years right. to look back and say, these are the reasons he needed to learn those lessons, or these are the ne- reasons that he needed to be super strong because he had this 
really big thing he needed to be resilient for later in his life or something, right? You don't have that perspective yet, but. Yeah, yeah. I mean, but like it has been eight years and every year, like I said, every year when we get to his alive day, we really reflect and we say, okay, if you didn't lose your leg, would we know this person? If we, if you didn't lose your leg, would you be like this? And we, we think about all the ways his life has been affected in a good way from losing his leg. And it, it really gives us perspective. We've really seen, I mean, just the people that we've met alone from this community and our advocacy too, like you had said in the introduction, our advocacy is a big part of our lives. It is something that I feel so passionate about that seen for myself that I rarely stick to things. I just like to bounce from like one passion project to the next. But this advocacy has been something that I have not wavered on and that I truly love and see myself doing for the rest of my life. Okay, so tell us about that. What What is the work you're doing with the disabled community? So we, our biggest thing is representation in media, but specifically literature. And we know the importance of not only kids being able to see themselves on a page or on screen, but for other kids to see people who are not like them. I always think to myself, man, if that kid had only, our, our book is coming out this year, we do have a book coming out. If only our, that kid had read our book before they met Hunter, they might not have been scared of him or they might not be in so much shock or they might not have made that comment or you know, asked such an awkward question. So, so it's helping the non-disabled understand how to interact with the disabled. Yes, I mean, I, I know yes, that's using no. a lot of, of yes, like titles, no right, labels, right. labels. But yes, know. no, that's fine. And I mean, terms are always changing, and I have to keep up on it myself. And I'm like in the community. So yes and no. Visibility. I always say visibility. Disability is huge because it normalizes it. It also gives people a chance to realize that Hunter leads a pretty normal life. He's happy. It's not like, like, I mean, there's been times where he, a kid went up to him and was like, I'll pray for you. And Hunter was like, um, <laughs> okay. Like I'm not in pain. I'm not living a depressed life. Like I'm a pretty much a normal kid, but in that kid's mind, he felt like, oh, that kid has a disability. Hmm, I should probably pay for it. Don't get me wrong. Praying is great. But I'm sure you see what I mean. You know, like there's a lot of pity surrounding the disability community. There's a lot of misconceptions. There's a lot of, oh, that person's in a wheelchair. Oh, they probably don't have that great of a life. That's not true. And that's where that's where we want to help with our advocacy is with literature and books and also just having a platform of Hunter making fun of the fact that he's missing a leg because it's totally a joke in our home. Like it's, and it's okay. We can all laugh about it. So yeah. So Mass Taylor Party of Five is where you're found on social media, right? And you're primarily on Instagram. Yes. yes? yes. So if people want to follow you, that's where they look for you, right? Mm -hmm. And then tell me about this book. Do you have more when you say that it you're reaching out into literature. Do you have more than this one book? Is are there other writings? Are there groups you're involved with? Um, what kind of book is this? So when I say we're involved in literature, we're involved in writing and publishing books that have disability inclusion. But to further talk about that, 
is we really want it to be entertaining for kids and also not have it be this kind of dry learning experience because that's where kids don't learn. And we are really trying to put books out there that are just fun for kids to read and we'll see a kid with limb difference in a book and have that spark conversations. We are also just big supporters of authors with disabilities in general and just trying to find books that will help readers just get to know the disability community and just see a character with a disability. So we try and talk about all the books we find that we love and we feel like is positive representation. And then we have our own books. And so we have a picture book that's for um, a younger audience called Hunter's Tall Tales, where Hunter goes to school and he's getting asked all these questions about his leg. And he makes up these crazy stories about him. Like he didn't eat enough vegetables, so his legs didn't grow. Or he's part robot and that's why his leg looks like a robot leg. And then there's pictures of his family and his dad's a robot and his dog's a robot. And then he gets the one question that leaves him speechless, which is, hey, what's your name? And <laughs> that's the whole turning point of the book of like, thank you for just asking me my name and not about my leg. And so we want kids to see disabilities, but we don't want them to see just the disability. And we want them, We, like I said, we just want it normalized. Like imagine if their favorite TV show had a character with a limb difference on it. It would seem so normal. So yeah, that's, that's mainly what we're doing. I have to say too, we have two books coming out this year. The second book is for an older audience. It's nonfiction and it's about famous people with disabilities. They're artists, adventurers, scientists, mm. um, dancers, like all these different people with all different backgrounds because we want people to know about these amazing people and they're not very well known and they need I to. love that. That sounds wonderful. Where do people find these books? Is it just by following you on Instagram that these things are going to pop up or where do they go? Yeah, so we'll definitely be talking about them on Instagram once they are um, published. The one, the nonfiction one with all the collection of biographies will be out in July and it'll be anywhere you want to buy a book, whether it's on Amazon, on Target, Barnes & Noble, it'll be all those places online. And then Hunter's Tall Tales uh, will come out this fall. Well, awesome. This fall meaning 2023, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Well, Thank you for being here. Do you have any final things you'd like to share before we close? You know, one of the one of the sayings that we've kind of really held on to that we really just try to tell people is there's always room for joy. No matter how hard of a time it is, there's always that glimpse of light. You can always look for that light. You can always look for, for that joy. And to know that joy and sadness can coexist mm. because we don't need to be thinking, oh, well, I feel happy that he's alive, but I'm sad that he lost his leg. That's okay. That's okay that you're feeling both of those feelings. So there's room for joy amidst that sadness and pain and whatever else you're feeling. And also hope is never in vain. I just remember hoping so hard that he would not lose his leg. And then finally, when it came to the time where he lost his leg, it was like, well, what happened? I hoped, I hoped and I prayed and I had all this faith why wasn't it enough and sometimes we have to realize that our faith and our hope it's it can still we can still have it and we don't get what we hope for and we don't get what we pray for but it's never in vain because it's exercising that faith and that act of hoping for something good how do you how do you deal with that space of when you you 
pray and you feel like you have the right to ask for certain things and the things you want and need so badly, it's as if those prayers were not heard. Or did you feel that they were heard and just that it needed to go a different direction? Or did you feel like they just weren't heard? That is such a great question because that has been something that I've really had to wrestle with. And it has been a long journey. And the best thing that I have been able to come up with is our relationship with God is very much a daughter, a child, and a parent. And I think of my kids, and I think no matter what their desires are, no matter what they want, I want them to come with me, come to me with those desires. They might not get what they want, but I still want them to build that relationship with me. It's all about relationships Mm -hmm. and knowing that even though you asked for something and it wasn't answered, it doesn't mean that it wasn't heard. And it doesn't mean that your relationship isn't, has failed. And that's the best thing that I've been able to come up with for myself. That's a very faithful approach. Thank you. Okay. As we close off the show here, I wanted to end with a quote from Christopher Reeves. So he used to play Superman, remember? He said, quote, a hero is an ordinary individual who finds the strength to persevere and endure in spite of overwhelming obstacles, unquote. I love that because it just, it sums all of this up. A hero is an ordinary individual who keeps standing up, like you said, keeps standing up over and over. So whether your challenge is depression or anxiety, a lost limb, the death of someone you love, an addiction, whatever yours is, the perseverance to keep getting up every day, to keep hoping, to keep using faith, to keep trying a little something more, to accept the hard and the good, you know, looking for the gratitude in there like Rosalie has just shared with us. This is what makes us the heroes of our stories. So your challenge this week is to pat yourself on the back and acknowledge the work that you're doing to keep hoping and to keep having faith and to keep trying through the hard stuff. You keep getting up every day. And even though all of the, you know, even though those days are filled with a mix of the happy and the difficult, you keep getting up and keep learning and stretching and growing and, you know, strengthening that muscle of resiliency. Whatever your heart is right now, keep at it. You've got this. Share this episode with someone in your world. Sharing is caring people. So taking a minute just to forward this to somebody who needs a little support and what they're going through is a big move. So spread the love and we will see you in two weeks for the next episode of the Love Your Story podcast. Thanks for being here.